This morning, we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 14. And so if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to grab a pew Bible and go ahead and open up to chapter 14 in the book of Revelation, that is where we find ourselves today. If you've been with us, then you know that we've been working through the book of Revelation chapter by chapter. And if you haven't been with us, we're so glad that you are joining us as we continue our journey through this last book of the Bible. This week, we find ourselves shifting gears from last week when we were talking about some not-so-great characters that are found throughout Scripture, and yet I think we found a wonderful way to not glorify them or give them any more time than necessary, but to see what is our response and what was Christ's response in the midst of facing the deceiver himself in Matthew chapter 2 when he was tempted in the wilderness. But now, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4, as he was tempted in the wilderness. But now... We find ourselves back looking at the glorious image of the throne room and the lamb that was slain. And so let us read this chapter together. Then I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of wrath of her sexual immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, And he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the sanctuary, crying out with a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sits on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the sanctuary, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has authority over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, as we hear these words, Lord, allow our hearts to be encouraged by them, not to fear, not to tremble of what could be, but knowing that you are good and you are at work on our behalf. And these are good words for us to hear. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we ask you to be glorified and magnified in our presence today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we get started, uh, I'm going to break this up into three sections, and we're going to try to work through them um, pretty quickly, because I just want to say one thing about each section. Uh, but the first is, th these first five verses, where John looks and he says, look and behold the Lamb, and standing on Mount Zion, he has the 144,000. We've, we've seen this number before. And we said that it's not a literal number, but it's supposed to be a number to encompass the completeness of those that have been saved by Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, I want us to keep that in our heads, that this 144,000 isn't a limited number, but is a number for us to say, yes, that God knows when all who are to be saved are saved, and then they come and be a part of this final kingdom of heaven, and their number is actually innumerable, as we remember back to Revelation chapter 4, where we've also seen this number of 144,000. But then I really want to focus in on one line, one verse in, this, for in these first four verses because I think that we might read it and we would be like, huh, what does this mean? Because now it feels like we're talking about a literal number. And that's in verse 4, and it says that these, these 144,000, are the ones that are not defiled with women, for they are virgins, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. You might read that. We might start, our minds might start thinking like, okay, well, now he's talking about something literal, right? A group of people that come out of the last days maybe that 
have, have never been defiled by women, right? And, and we should be careful to say defiled because when we think about the gift that God gave for procreation, it is in fact a gift and we need to see it as gift from God, especially as we look back at the blessing of God in Genesis, But what I want us to see in this is, I want us to start actually at the end of that verse where it says, these are the ones that have been purchased among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And I want us to recognize that language is also language used throughout the New Testament to specify those that have been saved by God. In fact, Paul writes about how we are the first fruits of God of Jesus. All that have declared the name of Jesus are his first fruits. And so it's actually claiming that all of these people are the ones that have been saved by Jesus. And so how do we deal with this language, right, about the the virgins that have been undefiled by women? Well, I want us to take, I want to take us to a particular passage in Corinthians chapter 11 starting in verse 2, and Paul says this, I am jealous for you. And I want to clarify that jealousy, this jealousy that Paul has is a godly jealousy, one as if like he wants to care for them, and so he's jealous in a, in a manner of speaking that's not uh, an unholy jealousy that we might think about when we have jealousy in our hearts because somebody has something that we want, that we long for, right? And so we're like, well, I want that, right? And so that's the kind of bad jealousy. Paul is talking about a jealousy where it's like, I want more for you. It's a godly jealousy that, I, that he's like, I believe there's more for you than what you are going after. But he says this, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so here's what I want us to get at. This is the thing that I want us to see in our Revelation passage. To me, the most beautiful language that is found throughout Scripture is the one of the church being the bride of Christ and Christ as the groom. And so when we read Revelation chapter 14, we need to be reading it with the eyes to see that we are talking about the marriage between Christ and his bride, his church. And throughout scripture, it says that his church is going to be holy and blameless and without blemish. They will be presented as a pure virgin, as the words of Paul are said, to that bride. But here's, or to that groom, and here's what I want us to see in this language is that we need to think about this from, again, the cultural context in which this passage comes from. You see, in a Jewish marriage, particularly in this day, there's the betrothal before there is the ceremony. And usually that betrothal is a year before the ceremony takes place where a man, and wo- uh, a man and a woman are engaged to one another, but in that engagement period, they are actually considered fully legally married, and it would require a certificate of divorce for them to separate. And so we're talking about a period of time where the bride commits herself 
to one groom and allows herself to be without blemish, without any contact for that year, knowing that she is preparing herself for the bridegroom. And in the same way, the church is in a period of preparation for her marriage to Jesus. And so what we need to understand is that when we read in chapter 14 about the 144,000, the church is another way to say that, that the church is to be presented to Jesus as this pure and holy bride, one that is unblemished to the Lamb. Because the Lamb, and remember, even in that passage, it says that these are the ones in in verse 3 who have been purchased from the earth. Well, who did the purchasing? Jesus did with his blood. And then what does Jesus' blood do? It makes the bride white as snow. It cleanses her of all of her sin, past, present, and future. The church will be presented to Jesus as holy and without blemish because of his work on the cross. Jesus is the lamb that is triumphant over everything that could harm the church for her final moments of being presented to the bridegroom, the bride to the bridegroom. And I love how Paul continues, what could possibly ruin this bride? Verse 3 in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, but I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Our devotion to Jesus is simple and pure. It is one, and I've said it again and again, of love, trust, and obedience. It's simple and pure devotion as a bride to her bridegroom. It is one of constant reflection of the one you get to marry. It's pure, simple devotion. You see, the hope would be in life that You do not get engaged to somebody that you do not love, that you have not experienced their love and your love returned. One does not simply propose to somebody that they do not love, and someone does not simply accept the proposal from somebody that they have not received love from. And in the same way, the bride of Christ understands this love that Jesus has for her. And for us, we live out of this exact same love that Jesus has for us. So that in those final days, the church becomes presented to Jesus, holy and unblemished 
as a pure virgin to the Lamb. It is simple and pure. And then he goes on in verse 4 to say, For one, if one who comes and preaches another Jesus, other than the Jesus that you know and love, whom we did not preach, or if you receive a different spirit which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not ex- accept, you bear this beautifully. Paul is saying, in the light of all of these deceptions coming in, we talked about this last week, the enemy wants to deceive you. And one of the ways he wants to deceive you is by the word of God himself, because he knows it too. Which is why we are not without excuse to also not know it. We have it. We can't let the enemy trick us by it. He comes to deceive through our minds. But if we turn and receive the simple truth of devotion to our groom, we won't miss what it is that we're supposed to be missing. We won't, we won't miss the fact that the enemy has come to deceive, to ta- try to separate us from the work that Jesus wants to do in our hearts through love, trust, and obedience. And I think this is actually clarified when we go forward into our next passage, our next little part of the scripture says, then I saw another angel who was flying in mid-heaven, and he had an eternal gospel to, cl- to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth and to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. He said, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. You see, the work that the enemy is going to try to do is deceive us by trying to believe, make you believe that the enemy is more powerful than God. And people are turning away because they saw what the enemy, Satan, was able to do through the beasts of the sea and the beasts of the land and say, well, look at all that power. But then John is like, no, listen to the voice of the angel who says, don't worship the one that looks like they can do a lot. Worship the one who already has done a lot. Our creator God, who made all things. It wasn't the enemy. It wasn't Satan that made anything. He can create nothing. He can only destroy because he came as the one to kill, steal, and destroy. But God, he is the creator. He is the one who made heaven, who made the earth, who made the sea, who made the springs of waters and made everything in them and on them. That's who this God is. And Babylon the Great is going to fall because of it. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. But what I want us to see from this, the contrast I want to make is this one of rest. And I've been here before, but I think it's so important for us to lean in and press into this idea. Because what we see is that as you read this, this final thing, this, this final woe, because again, these are set up as the three woes. Again, three angels are giving these proclamations to the earth. And so the third woe, it says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives that mark, he will drink of the wine of wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb, 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. No rest. I want us to think about this for a moment in our lives. How many of us live our lives restless? How many of us think that we, we, we live in this world and we feel like we can get no rest from the things around us because we're constantly doing and doing and doing and doing and doing and doing some more, and we ever, never actually have a moment where we just feel rested, where we feel like we've come to this place of total and complete contentment in life. The things are good as the way that they are supposed to be, even in the midst of suffering and hardship, we're just like, but it's okay. I still feel at rest. And what I want us to understand is that hell is presented as a place of without rest. Are we living in our own hell because we are not allowing ourselves to experience rest? Because we've missed the rest that is actually offered to us. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is our rest. And if we are living life in a hurried state, and you feel that you are without rest, you might be giving the enemy a stronghold and a foothold in your life that Jesus wants to take away from you. He wants you to feel at rest. He doesn't want you to feel hurried and burdened by life. He doesn't want you to feel like you cannot overcome, that you are constantly working throughout the week just to get to the weekend to rest from everything that you just went through. No, he wants you to live from a state of rest. And so that you can go into your work week rested. Where you don't feel overwhelmed. The enemy wants to steal your rest and Jesus wants to give it to you. I actually love where Matthew gets this from. Well, I should say Jesus gets it from, but Matthew makes clear. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, thus says Yahweh, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. They didn't want rest. This was 
meant to be a prophecy about the impending destruction of Jerusalem. And Yahweh is speaking to his people and saying, walk in the ways that I taught you. The same way that Jesus said, learn from me. In the same way we said last week, what did Jesus do to overcome the deception of the enemy? He knew the scriptures better than the enemy. Learn from him the rest that comes from knowing him. And knowing the things that he's talked about and said and commanded within scripture. Remember his promises that he gives you rest when all that the enemy wants to do is steal it from you. He wants to steal your rest from you, but it cannot be stolen if you remember who it comes from and you go to the one from whom it comes and rest in him. These are matters that we live in for our own spiritual growth, for our own spiritual contentment, for our own spiritual realization that in Jesus, I don't have to give the enemy anything. He can't steal my joy. He can't steal my peace. He can't steal my faith, my gentleness, my kindness, my goodness, or my self-control when I have rested in Christ. Because it's in Jesus that we receive those things. Have you ever noticed that people are the most cranky when they feel the most at unrest? When they haven't gotten a good night's sleep? Trust me, because I'm that person. I know that unrested people are cranky people because when I'm unrested, I'm a cranky person. But spiritually, do you not know that we become cranky people when we do not rest in Christ? We don't live out the fruit of the Spirit when we don't rest well. And so rest well in Jesus, knowing that he is at work for you. And that you do not have to work for him. Obey him, yes. Work for him, no. What I mean by that is you are not what you produce. You are who you are rested in Christ. And when you rest well, you obey well. But if you don't rest well, you obey poorly. The last thing that I want to cover is that last little section. Bear with me just a one more minute. Because the last section can be frightening talks about the sickle and the harvest of the earth. Particularly verse 20. It's a little very imagined, like brings a lot to mind. Words, they're escaping me. 
the winepress was trodden and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. To put that into perspective, that's from Griffin, Georgia to Greenville, South Carolina. And it's a river of blood as high as the horse's bridle. That's a lot. But the distance isn't what matters. I wanted to put that into perspective, but only so that I can then offer this, that all that distance means is going back into all the numbers thing, that when you put it all together, all it means is it is the wrath poured out completely on the wicked. What a fun way to say that by giving us a number. <laughs> but it's just that all the wicked of the earth will get theirs. But let me offer this. This comes from Matthew chapter 13. Because we've heard about this from before from Jesus. He said, he presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, do, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. But allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares, bind them into bundles, and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. This is what I want to offer. I think oftentimes the, the church thinks its work is to uproot the weeds. That we exist to fight and combat every little evil that we see in the world. That we're to be the ones that bring retribution on behalf of God. And so the moment we start seeing weeds, whether it's within our community, in our state, in politics, in the world around us, we want to nitpick at it, and we want to try to pull out all the weeds to make things all clean and nice. Jesus was never afraid of the weeds coming up with the wheat. And he never asked his church to go pull all the weeds before the harvest. I think the church has worked really hard to create a schism between itself and the people they're trying to reach by trying to point out why weeds are weeds instead of turning weeds into wheat. And you might be thinking, well, how can weeds turn to wheat? Well, Jesus turned water into wine. So I think he's capable of doing miracles. Our job is to preach Christ crucified. 
Our job is to be his bride. And in pure, simple devotion to Jesus, let that shine forth. Let people know that you are married to a wonderful bridegroom whom you love, and you cannot wait for the day that you get to see him face to face on the wedding day. Let us live out knowing that Jesus is triumphant. He is winning. The victory is his. And at the end of the day, he will do the harvesting. He will do the reaping. Let us just reveal him in the meantime to those around us without trying to rip them out of the ground and hurt them and bring them down and place a heavy burden on them to do and obey before they even know what it means to be loved by Jesus. What it means to find rest for their weary souls. Because I guarantee you, most people in this world that find themselves in a place of sin, doing things that they shouldn't be doing, disobeying the commands that we see so clearly in Scripture, is because they have never rested a day in their lives, and they don't know how to escape all the burdens that they're facing when all they needed to do was hear the invitation of Jesus, come to me. Come to me before you get yourself clean. Come to me before you figured it out. Come to me before you've made yourself one without blemish because guess what? You can't. But I can. So come to me. And we'll work the rest out later. I want you to be my bride. I want you to know that I love you. That I betrothed myself to you. And that you are mine. And when you know that you are the beloved's, you want to follow the beloved wherever he goes. How sweet is that? What an image. What a picture. A harvest is coming. Let's try to do more to reveal the bridegroom than trying to pull up every weed we see. Let us try to turn weeds into wheat, not pull them up. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you. We love you. We love that we are your bride and that you have purchased us and made us clean by your blood. You've made the sacrifice on our behalf because we can't do it for ourselves. And it's only you that can turn the weed into wheat. As we prepare for the great harvest, let us remind ourselves again and again that you do the work and we simply rest in it. You are the triumphant one who overcame by your blood, and we work to be the witnesses of your testimony. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.